This is a Scream Queen production. Carpenter. Happy True Crime Tuesday. One thing that I have discovered uh, that I love doing through this podcast is I love picking apart the good reputations of actual monsters like Charles Lindbergh, for example. We did that earlier this season or that friggin' nut John Harvey Kellogg. He's not all Fruit Loops and Corn Pops people. He just isn't. So today, we're going to do it again. In this episode, we're going after local legend Robert Wagner, a.k.a. number two in the Austin Powers movies. <laughs> now, I, so Robert Wagner is just one of those guys, like he has been in everything. You know his name, you know his face, but for me... Legit, the only thing I remember actually ever seeing him in is Austin Powers. Um, so I've had this story on my list for a while, but it was a post that I saw recently in a local history group on Facebook that bumped this story to the top of my list because it got on my nerves so bad. So I'm going to start by reading this post to you verbatim. It's from the group Michigan History, I believe, on Facebook. Um, and this is what it said. Robert Wagner was born on February 10th, 1930 in Detroit, Michigan. He is the son of Hazel Elvera nay Beau, a telephone operator, and Robert John Wagner Sr., a traveling salesman who worked for the Ford Motor Company. Robert Wagner's paternal grandparents were from Germany, and his maternal grand... Nope, already messed it up. Um, his paternal grandparents were from Germany, and his maternal grandparents were Norwegian. He has a sister, Mary. He graduated from St. Monica, and I don't think that's right. I think it's Santa Monica. I don't know, though. I could be wrong. I'm reading someone else's words right now. That's always a trap. Um, St. Monica Catholic High School in 1949. In his memoirs, Wagner claimed to have had affairs with Yvonne DiCarlo, Joan Crawford, Elizabeth Taylor, Anita Ekberg, Shirley Ann Field, Lori Nelson, and Joan Collins. I don't even know who half of those women are, but um, not cool to be spilling all the tea, dude. Uh, he also claimed a four-year romantic relationship with Barbara Stanwyck after they acted together in the 1953 movie Titanic. According to Wagner, because of the age difference, he was 22, she was 45, they kept the affair secret in order to avoid damage to their careers. In 1956, when he was 26 years old, Wagner became involved with 18-year-old actress Natalie Wood. They were married on December 18, 1957 in Scottsdale, Arizona. 
The couple announced their separation on June 20th, 1961, and divorced on April 27th, 1962. While working on location in Europe, Wagner reconnected with an old friend, actress Marion Marshall. After a two-year courtship, Wagner, Marshall, and her two sons from her marriage to Stanley Donnan, I don't know who any of these people are, except for Natalie Wood, of course, I know who that is, Um, they moved back to America. Wagner and Marshall married on July 21st, 1963 at the Bronx Courthouse and had one daughter together, Katie. They separated in June 1970 and divorced on October 14th, 1971. Wagner was engaged to Tina Sinatra from June 1970 until January 1972. Immediately afterwards, Wagner rekindled his romance with Wood. They married on July 16th aboard the Ramblin' Rose anchored off Paradise Cove in Malibu. They had a daughter, Courtney. Following Wood's death in late 1981, Wagner became the legal guardian of her daughter by producer Richard Gregson, Natasha, then 11. That was a weirdly worded sentence. Um, He also gradually cut ties with his former sister-in-law, Lana Wood. Lana has claimed publicly that the reason behind the couple's first divorce was that Natalie caught Wagner in the arms of another man. The scandal. On Valentine's Day 1982, Wagner began dating actress Jill St. John, whom he had known since the late 1950s. Wagner's memoir has an early photo of them together, taken in 1959 when they were contract players at Fox. After eight years together, they married on May 26, 1990, The marriage is the fourth for both Wagner and St. John, and it has lasted longer than all of their six previous marriages combined. The couple co-starred in six films between 1967 and 2014, most of them low budget, and they appeared on stage in a 1996 production of Love Letters. Wagner became a first-time grandfather when Katie Wagner, his daughter with Marshall, gave birth to her son, Riley John Wagner Lewis. In August 2007, Wagner and St. John sold the Brentwood Ranchette they'd lived in um, since 1983 for reported $14 million. The couple now resides in Aspen, Colorado, where they built a vacation home in 1995. They retain a condo in Los Angeles. Are you guys asleep yet? Because that was boring. I'm sorry. But it was kind of important because number one, that's like his Wikipedia page verbatim, I know, because I was just looking at his Wikipedia page for hours. Um, But it leaves out one real important part. So um, my comment on this post in the Michigan History Group was something to the effect of, um, so yeah, this is tantamount to posting about what a wonderful football player O.J. Simpson was and leaving out the part about the murder. Because isn't that what we're all here for, the murder? Um, Yeah, it is. Of course it is. But before we get into that, I do need to thank today's sponsor. Apostrophe is a prescription skincare company that offers science-backed oral and topical medications that are clinically proven to help clear acne. Apostrophe connects you with a board-certified dermatologist who will create a personalized treatment plan that is perfectly tailored to your unique skin. Simply fill out Apostrophe's online quiz about your skin goals and medical history. Then snap a few selfies and your dermatologist will create your customized treatment plan. 
Apostrophe treats acne, and they can also help you hit your other skincare goals like reducing redness, wrinkles, and even dark spots. And today I've got a special deal for SoDead listeners. Save $15 off your first visit with a board-certified dermatologist at apostrophe.com slash SoDead when you use code SoDead. That's S-O-D-E-A-D. This code is only available to SoDead listeners. Uh, to get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash SoDead and click begin visit. Then use code SoDead at sign up and you'll get $15 off your dermatology visit. That's apostrophe.com slash SoDead and use that code SoDead to get your dermatology visit and save $15. Thanks so much to Apostrophe for sponsoring SoDead today. All right, Robert Wagner. I realize I just gave you his entire biography, but that one was pretty dry and boring. So let's do it again, so dead style. RJ, as he was called because he was Robert Jr., um, he was in fact born on February 10th, 1930 in Detroit. His mom was a telephone operator, and his dad did work for Ford. On some sites, he's described as a traveling salesman, and on others, he's listed as a steel executive. So we're just going to leave it vague and say that Robert Sr. worked for the auto industry. When RJ was seven, he moved with his auntie and uncle in Bel Air. I'm kidding. Um, I mean, he did move to Bel Air, but it was with his parents and his sister Mary. No word on any aunts or uncles in the area. RJ was a good-looking kid with big dreams. He wanted to be an actor. Uh, In his youth, he got a job at the Bel Air Country Club, where he worked as a caddy for the likes of Fred Astaire and Clark Gable. Uh, Even with these connections, though, the whole acting thing just was not happening for RJ. He had a couple of screen tests that he failed. And How do you fail a screen test? I mean, I get like you just not getting the part, but... Is it failing the screen test or is it just them picking somebody else? That seems like a harsh term to use. Um, Anyway, it wasn't until he was out to lunch with his parents in Beverly Hills one afternoon as a teenager that a talent scout discovered him. He's like, "Uh, I like your look, kid. Here's my card. Um, I'm going to be doing a lot of like old Hollywood impressions today. So if that's not your thing, um, you might want to go listen to somebody else because, yeah. I'm, I'm going to do that a lot today. Um, so RJ's first film role was an uncredited one in the 1950s film The Happy Years when he was 19. From there, he signed a contract with 20th Century Fox, and that was kind of how they did it back then with most actors. Um, they would sign contracts with specific studios, and then they had to do X amount of movies for that studio. They couldn't kind of just like pick and choose their projects all willy-nilly like actors get to do today. They were kind of locked into certain, certain roles, certain films with a certain company. So before long, RJ was a bona fide up-and-coming Hollywood star. And what does a young, hot movie star in Hollywood do? He has all of the sex, of course. Uh, as previously mentioned, RJ had affairs with Joan Crawford, Elizabeth Taylor, Joan Collins, etc., etc. His most significant relationship during those early years was a four-year affair with actress Barbara Stanwyck, who he did meet on the set of the 1953 version of Titanic. Um, They did keep their relationship a secret because Barbara was twice RJ's age. She was 45. He was 22. Why, you're old enough to be his mother. 
that was a bad one. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's late and I'm tired. Um, So that relationship came to an abrupt halt when 26-year-old RJ fell in love with 18-year-old Hollywood starlet Natalie Wood. Now, whereas RJ always kind of teetered on the edge of stardom, um, you know, he did okay in supporting roles, but then the few movies he was given leading roles in flopped, um, and then the offers started coming in, like, fewer and further between. Natalie, on the other hand, was, like, super-duper famous, and she had been since she was a little girl. Born Natalia Zakarenko on July 20th, 1938 in San Francisco, Natalie was the daughter of Russian immigrants. Her father was the son of a chocolate factory worker, and her mother was the daughter of a candle maker. Both families immigrated to North America during the Russian, Russian, during the Russian Civil War. Uh, as a result of all of that kind of upheaval and starting over, Natalie's mother Maria never got to live her dream of becoming an actress. So, as parents do, she projected that onto Natalie. She took her adorable toddler with her dark ringlets and her big brown eyes to the cinema all the time. They hovered around film sets. They were in California, so movies were being filmed everywhere. Uh, And eventually, her plan worked. When Natalie, who went by Natasha at home and spoke fluent Russian, was just four years old, she was noticed by members of a film crew during a shoot in downtown Santa Rosa. She got her first part at age four in the movie Happy Land. And it was just like one little scene, 15 seconds, but the director, Irving Pichel, I guess it could be Pichel. I'm not sure how to say it, and I don't care. Um, He saw something special in Natalie. Her sister Lana would later say that Irving actually wanted to adopt Natalie, which is fucking creepy, but he settled for just staying in touch with her family instead, which is a bit more reasonable. When Natalie was six, Irving took on a project that had a role for a young girl, and he asked Natalie's mother to bring her to Los Angeles for a screen test. This woman, for a screen test, not even a guaranteed part or a recurring role, but one single audition, packed up her entire family and moved them to Los Angeles so that she could force her preschool-age daughter to pursue a career in acting. Her husband, who was a raging alcoholic, by the way, was reportedly against the idea, but Maria could not be swayed. She may not have been able to pursue an acting career for herself, but she was going to do it for her daughter, no matter the cost, and the cost was high. So that first big part Natalie got, the one her family moved to L.A. for, she starred in the 1946 film Tomorrow is Forever opposite Orson Welles. When she was unable to cry on command, her mother took a butterfly, like a real living butterfly, and ripped it to pieces in front of Natalie to make her cry. Natalie was seven. When she started acting in big pictures, the studio changed her name from Natalia Zakarenko to Natalie Wood. Much easier to say, spell, fit on a screen, right? Um, So she played the cute little girl in several big name films, and she signed a contract with 20th Century Faxed. Faxed? Or just Fox? It's just one fax. Yeah, and it's like, yeah. Um, 
Her best-known film, of course, was Miracle on 34th Street. She's the little girl in the movie, like the the girl. Um, And that role made her Hollywood's biggest and most sought-after child actor. When Natalie was 10, she was walking down the hall at 20th Century Fox Studios one day when she passed 18-year-old Robert Wagner, who was newly under contract. She turned to her mother and said, I'm going to marry him. How funny, too, though, that she was 10 and he was 18, um, and she was already the seasoned actor with the lengthy career, and he was the one that was newly under contract just about to star in his first film. Or I guess he didn't star. It was a supporting role. You know what I mean. Potato, potato. Um, So while teenage marriage was pretty common in the 40s and 50s, 10 was still a bit too young, so it would be another several years before Natalie and RJ's love story began. And during those years, Natalie's life was not easy. At 15, she allegedly became involved, and I'm doing air quotes around became involved, with Frank Sinatra. So quick math, she was born in 1938, so she would have been 15 in 1953. This would have been the year. Um, In 1953, Frank Sinatra would have been 38 So that's not a relationship or an affair, as it's often referred to. That is child rape, actually. Um, At 16, Natalie was brutally and violently raped at Chateau Marmont during an audition. The assault went on for hours, but a traumatized and physically injured Natalie refused to report it, as her rapist was a powerful Hollywood bigwig, a married man, one of her big screen idols, and even at 16, Natalie knew enough about Tinseltown politics to know that the allegations would more likely ruin her career than her rapists. So I did a lot of digging on this because I'm nosy and I was so curious as to who it was. Natalie never named her rapist in an official capacity. She never talked about it at all. It was her sister that shared this story. Uh, There were never any charges filed. There was not even an investigation because uh, the attack wasn't reported. But all you've got to do is a quick Google search to see that it's pretty widely believed that the man was Kirk Douglas. Was it? I have no idea. I'm. That's just what Google says. So take it or leave it. Natalie's silence about her attack paid off, heavy on the air quotes again, because also at the age of 16, she landed a huge role opposite James Dean in Rebel Without a Cause. During the making of that movie, Natalie had an affair, again with the air quotes, with 42-year-old director James Ray. She was 16. He was 42. So again, that is not an affair like it's called in most articles about her. That is child rape. Natalie was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress for her role in Rebel Without a Cause. In 1956, Natalie graduated from Van Nuys High School. On her 18th birthday later that year, studio heads set her up on a date with her old crush, uh, Robert Wagner, who was now 26. Natalie was a world-famous actress, hot off her biggest movie to date in an Oscar nomination, kind of making the switch from child actress to, like, teenage, hitting womanhood, more serious roles. 
while RJ was still looking for his big break. Um, So the setup was done as a way to kind of garner some publicity, but the two actually fell head over heels in love, and they were married on December 28, 1957, in Scottsdale, Arizona. They spent their honeymoon on a yacht in the Florida Keys, even though Natalie had a big fear of deep water. Before Natalie was even born, when her mom was a little girl, a fortune teller told her to be wary of her second child, which Natalie was her second child, um, that her second child was going to be a world-famous beauty, but that she would die in dark water. Uh, So Natalie also had premonitions about her death in dark water. Now, whether she came to those premonitions on her own or whether her mother like told her her whole life that she was going to die in dark water, (laughs) I'm not sure. I wouldn't put it past her mom. She sounded like a pretty wicked woman. Um, But either way, Natalie had this lifelong fear that she was going to die in deep, dark water, But she loved RJ so much that she honeymooned on a yacht, even though she couldn't swim. Natalie continued to land starring roles, including in 1958's Kings Go Forth, opposite Frank Sinatra, one of her many abusers, although she kind of saw him as more of a father figure at the time because Hollywood, all men were gross. Uh, 1960s, she starred in All the Fine Young Cannibals opposite her husband, Robert Wagner, which, like most of his movies, was a total flop. And in 1961, she starred as Maria in West Side Story and opposite Warren Beatty in Splendor in the Grass. So both of those movies the same year, and she got a Golden Globe nomination for Splendor in the Grass. 1961 was a big year in Natalie's life. Not only did she do two of her biggest movies, um, but on June 20th, she and husband RJ shocked the world when they announced their separation after just three and a half years of marriage. The immediate rumor was that Natalie was having an affair with her co-star in Splendor in the Grass, Warren Beatty. Um, She never denied those rumors. She stayed silent and she allowed the public to vilify her. You know, it's always the woman. Even though the truth, which was whispered about back then and has come out in personal accounts and memoirs since, was very different. According to Natalie's sister, Lana, which Natalie would have been all of like 22, 23 at this time, she arrived home to her Beverly Hills mansion one day and she found RJ in bed with another man. Now, it should be noted here that prior to marrying Natalie, there were rumors all over Hollywood about Robert's sexuality and they kind of fell to the wayside when he got married and then she comes home She finds him in bed with another man. He still denies this to this day, but it is a pretty widely reported fact among people that knew them both. Natalie fled to her parents' house in hysterics, locked herself in her childhood bedroom, and she overdosed on sleeping pills, one of many suicide attempts over the years, which caused her to have to be rushed to the hospital. Um, She was treated. She was able to be saved. She and RJ separated pretty much immediately afterwards. And again, he always denied those allegations. Um, And Natalie just kind of allowed the public to believe what they wanted to believe about her rather than out RJ as gay or bisexual because she loved him. Because that, I mean, that wouldn't really be a big deal now. It would be a little scandalous. Um, But in the 1960s, that would have been a huge deal. And it would have ruined his career. And he wasn't having a great career, really, anyway. 
Following her divorce from RJ, Natalie went on to date fellow actors Warren Beatty and Michael Caine, among others, um, and her star in Hollywood continued to soar. She starred in several more movies. She was nominated for three Academy Awards, and on May 30th, 1969, she married British producer Richard Gregson. Their daughter, Natasha, was born in 1970, which Natasha went on to have a film career of her own in the 90s and early 2000s. She was in, like, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the movie, not the show, Two Girls and a Guy, Urban Legend, High Fidelity, Wonderland, bunch of TV shows. So she went on to act as well. RJ, for his part, relocated to Europe after the divorce, where... Like we talked about at the very beginning, he reconnected with an old friend, actress Marion Marshall, and the two began to date. Marion was a divorced mother with two young sons, so when RJ returned to Hollywood a year later in 1963, Marion and the boys joined him. RJ and Marion were married in New York City on July 21st, 1963. Their daughter Katie was born a year later in 1964. While his personal life was going well, his film career was not. Wagner had small roles in movies that were mostly flops, and in the late 60s, his studio convinced him to make the switch from film to TV roles, where he did, like, marginally better, but still not great. In 1971, both Natalie and RJ's second marriages fell apart, and they were both single once again. Did they rekindle their love? Not yet. In a super weird twist, RJ dated and got engaged to Frank Sinatra's daughter, Tina. So engaged to his ex-wife's ex-boyfriend's daughter. But they called things off in 1972, and then RJ and Natalie did get back together. And there was no taking things slowly the second time around. Many of the obstacles they'd faced the first time were no more. For one thing, they'd both grown up quite a bit. They were 42 and 34, respectively, at this point, versus 26 and 18. So they're older, they're more mature, they're both parents now, and looking for more of a family environment versus, like, the wild, young Hollywood scene when they got married the first time. But probably most importantly was that Natalie at this point was somewhat retired from acting. She was much more focused on family. She wasn't really taking many roles. Meanwhile, RJ was enjoying a semi-successful TV career. So there wasn't that toxic, my wife's more successful than me, so I'm going to treat her like shit thing going on anymore. Let's be real, that's what it was. RJ and Natalie remarried on July 16th, 1972, aboard the ship the Ramblin' Rose off the coast of Malibu. His daughter Katie was eight, her daughter Natasha was two, and their only child together, daughter Courtney, was born two years later in 1974. So they've got this blended family of cute little girls, they're solid now, things are going well, In 1975, they purchased a yacht together named the Challenger, but they changed the boat's name to the Splendor, and apparently it's bad luck to rename a boat, but nobody told the Wagners that. So uh, they hired a captain for the yacht, 27-year-old Dennis Davern, a strapping young lad who lived on the yacht full-time and took RJ and Natalie out on all of their adventures. Uh, Their relationship was not just that of an employer-employee. They became friends with Davern. 
and he kind of considered Natalie a confidant. So, you know, he would take the whole family out on a trip. Robert and the kids would get in the water and go swimming. Natalie couldn't swim, so she'd sit up on deck with him and they'd talk and she'd give him advice about life. He would listen to her troubles. There was no funny business, okay? Um, I'm sure he was in love with her because who wasn't? She was freaking beautiful, but they were just friends. Um, He considered both her and RJ his good friends. In 1979, Robert landed the lead role in an ABC television series called Heart to Heart. He played kind of like the hot season detective. And his age is, you know, working in his favor, right? So he's the hot older guy now. Meanwhile, Natalie's in her 40s. So she's past her leading lady prime and she's feeling it. She suspects there's something going on between RJ and his co-star, Stephanie Powers. She's jealous Things are starting to get tense between them, but, you know, it's the huge. They were both jealous and insecure people. Natalie, at one point, guest starred on an episode of Heart to Heart. And then in 1981, 43-year-old Natalie Wood landed the lead role in a sci-fi movie called Brainstorm opposite 38-year-old Christopher Walken, who was fresh off his Oscar win for The Deer Hunter. So he was hot, like both professionally and physically. Have you you seen photos of young Christopher Walken? Because he was super hot. Um, So six weeks of on-location filming began in North Carolina in September of 1981. During that time, RJ visited Natalie on set and decided that something suspicious was going on between his wife and Christopher Walken. My, how the turntables. Um, So Natalie's spent the past two years worrying about something going on between RJ and his younger, hotter co-star. And now here he is doing the same dang thing. Uh, In his memoir, Wagner wrote, at the least, they were having an emotional affair. And people on set confirmed it too. Were they, you know, actually carrying on an affair? Maybe, maybe not. But there was definitely like a spark between them. After the six weeks in the North Carolina, in the North Carolina, <laughs> after the six weeks in North Carolina were done, the production moved back to the Metro Goldwyn Mayer Studio in Culver City, California, to film its interior scenes. There was a production break at the end of November for the Thanksgiving holiday, and that is when the shit hit the fan. Um, before we get into all that, though, I do need to take a minute. <laughs> I wanted to say minute and moment, so I called it a mimic. Um, I want to take a minute to thank today's other sponsor, HelloFresh. HelloFresh brings fresh pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes right to your door. Skip trips to the grocery store, just cross that errand right off your to-do list, and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. There's a reason HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit, and that is because it's so good. I'm not getting any younger over here, and so I'm trying to get a handle on my health, and HelloFresh's calorie smart options make it easier to enjoy tasty, low-calorie meals without scouring the internet for recipes, not knowing if they're going to be any good. With HelloFresh, these are tried-and-true recipes, so you know that they're going to be delicious. And the ingredients are fresh. We're talking from the farm to your front door in less than a week's time, so you know you're getting fresh quality ingredients. 
my brain is so fried most of the time these days that I don't want to have to think about like anything really. Just tell me what to do. Give me the tools to do it and I will get it done. That's what I love about HelloFresh. You get the recipe, the instructions, and the pre-measured ingredients all delivered in a cute little box. Well, it's a pretty big box actually, but you know what I mean. Um, The point is no guesswork required. And today I've got a special offer for Soda listeners. Go to HelloFresh.com slash SoDead14 and use code SoDead14 for up to 14 free meals plus free shipping. Again, that's HelloFresh.com slash SoDead14, promo code SoDead14 for up to 14 free meals and free shipping. Give America's number one meal kit a try today. Shit, you guys, you know what I just realized during that commercial? I forgot to put my phone on silent. I heard one, like, vibration of the table that my entire little studio sits on. There might have been more, so if you hear random buzzing through the first half of the episode, sorry, fucking sorry. Um, anyway, all right, let's get back to it. November 29th, 1981 was a Sunday. Families and households all around the U.S. of A. were soaking up the last little bit of Thanksgiving weekend. Maybe putting up the Christmas tree. I don't know. Did they do that super early back in the 80s? I was a baby. I don't remember. Uh, Eating leftover turkey, repurposed into sandwiches, watching whatever was on TV because there were not a lot of options back then. Perhaps Heart to Heart, starring Robert Wagner. Uh, It was a lazy Sunday pretty much everywhere, I would imagine. Uh, And then all major television networks abruptly interrupted their holiday programming with the breaking news that the body of Natalie Wood had been found floating in the ocean off the coast of Catalina. So for me, I was all of a year old when this happened. So for my entire conscious memory, Natalie Wood has been dead. A lot of you weren't even born yet, but for the people who grew up watching her on the big screen for almost 40 years, from the little girl in The Miracle on 34th Street to Rebel Without a Cause to West Side Story to Splendor in the Grass to, you know, just playing the older Hollywood bombshell and cameos on TV shows. This was shocking. Like, Princess Diana just died in a car accident. Shocking. And it dawns on me as I'm saying that, that some of you listening don't even remember when that happened. And that makes me feel so old. Anyway, here is what happened. RJ and Natalie planned a getaway for the weekend following Thanksgiving because, remember, the moving that sh- the moving? The movie that she was filming was on production hiatus. So Natalie invited like a number of their friends to join them, but most of the friends declined. The weather was looking pretty nasty for the weekend. A lot of people were just out of town for the holiday, you know, visiting family. So everybody turned down a weekend on a yacht with a gorgeous Hollywood power couple. Everyone except for one person... Natalie's co-star in her new movie, who RJ suspected she was having an affair with, Christopher Walken. Walken didn't live in town, so he didn't have family nearby to spend the holiday with, so when Natalie asked, he was like, sure, why not? Um, Plus, like, if they did have a thing going on, even if it wasn't physical, if it was just like that spark between them, of course he would want to spend a weekend with her, right? So on Friday, November 27th, 
Natalie Wood, her husband, Robert R.J. Wagner, her co-star in Maybe More, Christopher Walken, and her friend, Captain Dennis Davern, set sail for Catalina Island around noon. It was a cold, gray, stormy day. The water was choppy and rough. It was raining. But they went anyway. Because nothing stops the fucking Catalina wine mixer. Am I right? So on the boat, Natalie and Christopher Walken. I don't like I feel weird calling him Christopher. Like I definitely can't do that. I can't call him Christopher. Um and Walken, I don't know. I that also sounds weird to me. So I just I think I'm just gonna keep calling him Christopher Walken this whole time, even though it's a little awkward. Um so on the boat, Natalie and Christopher Walken were openly flirting. RJ was understandably not happy about it, and tensions were pretty high. Uh, Walken got seasick. He said he wasn't feeling well, and he went to his room. And then a little while later, the yacht arrived in Catalina. So they get there, and there are no moorings available. Moorings for my fellow non-seafarers, because you know I had to look this up. Um, Moorings are basically like parking spots for boats, so you just like put it in park chain it up, and then you can hop on and off the dock like you're coming and going from a hotel room, kind of. Well, there were no vacancies at the inn, so they had to anchor the yacht in the ocean about a quarter of a mile from the island and then ride the dinghy to and from the island. Uh, How embarrassing, especially for, like, movie stars. Plan your life better. So I don't think I have to tell you that things were just not going well. Uh, They get the boat anchored, they take the dinghy to Catalina, and they go to dinner about 5 o'clock on Friday night. They have some drinks, they have dinner, and then they return to the boat. The water's pretty rough, so Robert's like, hey, should we, like, move the boat, try to find a better spot? It's kind of, like, rocking and rolling. She just wants to get off the boat altogether, so they're fighting. The trip is a disaster. Everybody's in a shitty mood. And so Natalie decides she's going to go back to the island. She's going to stay in a hotel for the night. She doesn't want to be around her husband. She doesn't want to sleep on a boat that's, like, rocking back and forth all night. I don't blame her. So RJ told Captain Dennis to take Natalie in the dinghy back to the island. He did. They found a hotel. The two of them stayed on land Friday night while RJ and Christopher Walken stayed on the boat. During that time, Natalie confided in Dennis that she was thinking about divorcing RJ. Again, things weren't going well. This trip was a bad idea. You know, she was just not happy. So she was going to take a helicopter back to L.A. the next day. But Saturday morning comes around, she changed her mind, and she and Dennis went back out to the lot, to the lot, to the yacht. Later that day, Natalie and Christopher Walken went alone back to the island, and they spent several hours at a bar together. Patrons said they were laughing and they were flirting. And then after a few hours, RJ shows up, super pissed, obviously. Where have you guys been? What are you doing? What is going on here? So there's a little little incident, and then all four occupants of the Splendor, so RJ, Natalie, Christopher Walken, and Captain Dennis, they all patch up, whatever. They go to dinner together that night at Doug's Harbor Reef in Catalina. So they drank, they fought. At some point, somebody threw a glass at the wall. In some of the articles I read, it was Natalie that did it. In some articles, it was one of the guys. I'm not really sure who did it. Does it matter? A fucking glass was thrown at a wall in a restaurant. Grow 
up. The group was so trashed by the time they left the restaurant around 10 o'clock Saturday night that the restaurant's manager actually called the harbor master and was like, hey, please make sure that these idiots make it back to their yacht okay. You know, he was worried that they literally couldn't get on the dinghy and get back to the boat. But they did. They all reboarded the yacht without incident. Uh, Now, what happened next, this story has changed quite a bit in the 40 years since it happened. But I'm going to start by telling you the way that it was reported at the time. So they get back on the yacht. They crack open another bottle of wine. They're all already drunk, and they keep partying. Natalie and Christopher Walken are again, like, openly flirting right in front of her husband, RJ gets super pissed, so pissed that he smashes a bottle of wine on the table and he screams at Walken, Jesus Christ, what are you trying to do? Fuck my wife? Well, obviously he is, yeah. That's like the whole point, right? Like that's why he's there. So Natalie gets up, she's mad and she's embarrassed. She goes to her room, Walken's like, fuck this shit, I'm out. He goes back to his room And then around 11.30, RJ decides that he's finally going to go to bed. And that's when he discovers that Natalie's missing. She's not on the boat. The dinghy's missing. He tells Captain Dennis, you know, hey, Natalie's missing. She probably tried to take the dinghy back to the island. And Captain Dennis is like, no, I don't think so. She's terrified of water. She can't swim. She doesn't know how to operate the dinghy. It's pitch black out. It's raining. There's no way she would do that. Even drunk, and she was drunk, she wouldn't do that. So they look for her. They can't find her. They search for a couple hours. Still no sign of her. So finally around 3.30 in the morning, four hours after she goes missing, the Coast Guard is called in. And then a few more hours go by, and at 8 a.m. on November 29th, 1981, the body of 43-year-old Natalie Wood was found floating face down about a mile south of where the yacht was anchored. She was wearing a flannel nightgown, a down jacket, and blue woolly socks. The dinghy was found run aground a short distance away, so two little girls, Natasha was just 11, Courtney was 7, lost their mom, A man lost the love of his life, and a nation lost a Hollywood icon. The news shocked the world, especially considering how well-documented Natalie's fear of dying in dark water was, and then it happened. Uh, An autopsy performed the next day found that her blood alcohol level was 0.14, so she was very intoxicated. She also had motion sickness and anxiety medication in her system, and both of those intensified the effects of alcohol. So she probably was a pretty bad mess that night. Um, The coroner said that the bruises on her body were consistent with a fall from the boat. Um, You know, if she was trying to get into the dinghy and she fell, those were the types of injuries she would have. So her death was ruled an accidental drowning. On Valentine's Day, 1982, less than three months after his wife's tragic death, grieving widower Robert Wagner began dating actress Jill St. John. They were together for eight years before they got married in 1990. So after Natalie's death, RJ actually gained legal guardianship of his stepdaughter, Natasha, hence the reason that her last name is Wagner. Her name's Natasha Gregson Wagner. So uh, RJ and Jill raised Natalie's daughters together as a family. But 
a happy ending just was not in the cards for old RJ because secrets do not stay buried, people. The same way that the news of Natalie's death shocked the world in 1981, everyone freaked the fuck out again almost exactly 30 years later on November. (laughs) That might be my best one yet. November. November 17th. 2011, when the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department announced that they were officially reopening the investigation into Natalie Wood's death. Turns out there had been rumblings over the years that something just wasn't right. Uh, The rumors started pretty much the day of the accident. The stories didn't make sense. Natalie's injuries didn't make sense. The actions of authorities didn't make sense. Something was amiss. Those rumors intensified in 2001 when the biography Natasha, a biography of Natalie Wood, was published 20 years after her death. And honey, that book spilled all of the tea, like all of it. Uh, Rumors of foul play intensified further in 2009 when Captus... It is so late, you guys. It's like midnight right now. I'm sorry. When Captain Dennis Davern published the memoir, Goodbye, Natalie, Goodbye, Splendor. That book was seen as the impetus for reopening the investigation. I can fucking say impetus and I can't say captain. So. According to Captain Dennis, who was, remember, he was good friends with both RJ and Natalie before that night. The night of the accident, he lied to authorities. He went along with the false narrative that RJ was spinning. But he regretted lying about what happened, and he started telling people pretty soon after Natalie's death the real story. Nobody listened to him, though, until he eventually published his book. So... Here is what really happened the night Natalie Wood died, according to the captain of her yacht, The Splendor. Once the foursome reboarded the yacht after their disastrous dinner on Saturday night, they did continue drinking. RJ did smash a bottle of wine and accuse Christopher Walken of trying to sleep with his wife. Walken did retreat to his room. But when Natalie tried to do the same, RJ chased after her, screaming, making accusations. The fight continued on the boat's deck. Captain Dennis heard the couple screaming at one another in what he called the worst fight he'd ever witnessed between them. Well, I don't I don't know if witnessed is the right word because he didn't like see it, he just heard it. But he had heard them fight a lot. You know, he'd been with them for several years at this point. They fought all the time, but this was the worst fight he'd ever heard. At one point, he heard the sound of the dinghy ropes kind of banging against the ship as if someone was trying to lower the dinghy into the water. And the last thing that he heard was RJ yell, get off my fucking boat. And then silence, an eerie silence. Around 1130, RJ found Captain Dennis on the bridge. He, um, RJ, was all sweaty and disheveled, and he said, Natalie's missing. So Dennis went and he searched the whole yacht. He couldn't find her. So he wanted to turn on the spotlight and see if they could see her out in the water, but RJ Wood didn't let him. He was just like, nope, 
not doing that. And he sat down and got out a bottle of scotch. So make of that what you will. Dennis said that he always regretted that he let RJ make him wait four hours to call the Coast Guard, that he regretted lying about the fight that went down, but it became clear to him pretty quickly that there were strings being pulled behind the scenes and there was a major cover-up going on, so he didn't bother going back to the police to amend his statement because they were covering everything up anyways. And then there was the autopsy report. So it came out that medical personnel that had assisted with the autopsy had major concerns about Natalie's injuries. She had huge bruises and scratches and head wounds consistent with a struggle and being forcibly pushed from the boat. Um, not, Not consistent with accidentally going overboard. So the original determination that Natalie fell overboard and drowned trying to get into the dinghy in the dark in the rain, that just didn't make sense. The, The injuries didn't match that. And the people that had these concerns voiced them to the head medical examiner. Is that who it would have been? Probably, yeah. I would know this if it wasn't midnight right now. Um, They voiced this to the medical examiner, and he was just like, eh, some things are just better left untouched. Just just leave it alone. Let Let me handle this. Shady, right? Of course it is. It's Hollywood. So on January 14th, 2013, the L.A. County Sheriff's Department changed the cause of death on Natalie's autopsy report from accidental drowning to drowning and other undetermined factors. On February 1st, 2018, five years later, Robert Wagner was (laughs) official... I was trying to be so serious. (sighs) On February 1st, 2018, Robert Wagner was officially named as a person of interest in his wife's death. As of the time of this recording, no arrests have been made, no charges have been filed. In 2020, Natalie's daughter, Natasha Greggs, I quit. I'm just, somebody else want to do this? Who wants to host So Dead moving forward? I'm fired. I can't do it anymore. I can't talk. I can't talk. Uh, (laughs) In 2020, Natalie's daughter, Natasha Gregson Wagner, released a documentary called Natalie Wood, What Remains Behind, which I haven't had time to watch it yet, but I am going to make the time sometime this week because I am super invested. Like, I want to see this. I just don't have time. It's midnight. How many times have I told you that it's midnight? Because it's midnight. Um, So if it feels like I'm leaving a lot of details out, that's because I am. There is just so much. There's so much. And I think I've told you guys before, it's actually harder to do a story when there's a ton of information out there because it's hard to pick the the angle you want to come from and the parts you want to cover. Like this could be a several part mini series. Maybe it is, maybe there. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if there is a whole podcast about Natalie Wood's death and then what am I even doing right now? Anyway, moving on before I think about that too much. So if you want to know more about this case and really, really deep dive into it, I would recommend first reading the book Natalie Wood, The Complete Biography by Suzanne Finstad, which that was re-released in 2020. So she's the one that wrote the the first book that I told you guys about way back in 2001. And then she kind of redid it and added some information in 2020. And that is this one. Um, And that is kind of the definitive, he totally fucking killed her report. 
And then for some balance, watch the documentary I just told you about, um, the one that her daughter did, which is the definitive no, he fucking didn't report. Uh, And then let me know what you think. Is Detroit darling Robert Wagner a murderer? Or is he an innocent man who's been haunted by his wife's ghost for the past 40 years without cause? I am on the fence. Um, I really I really am with this one. Like, I can see it going either way. Of course, there's the whole, like, she would never, she would never get into the water on her own. She was fucking drunk. Drunk people do dumb shit. Maybe she did. Um, But then, of course, there was the fight and the lying and the wait to search for her and the autopsy report. I mean, there's just so much. There's so much. I just don't know. One thing I do know, though, is that good old RJ is 90 fucking one. So we better hurry up and figure this shit out. Thank you for coming to my dead talk. My main sources for today's episode were episode 215 of My Favorite Murder, which I used as more of a reference than actual research because I, yeah, yeah. Um, That's what they tell you to do. They say don't use them for research. So I use them as a reference point, but then I definitely, definitely do some fact checking. Uh, And then an article written for Harper's Bazaar by Kaylee Roberts and an article written for Los Angeles Magazine by Suzanne Finstad, the author of those books. You can find a full list of resources on the page for this episode, which is on the So Dead website. (sighs) All right, guys. I am going to skip the liquid cheese for today because I am just fucking exhausted, to be honest with you. It is, what time is it? I've said it like 90 times during this episode. It's midnight. On Monday, Monday into Tuesday midnight, so this episode is coming out like today, I still have to edit it, get it over to my editor who's going to edit it in the morning, so you're not going to get it until mid-afternoon anyways, and the more I keep talking, the longer that's all going to take. So um, I've just like, between the screamatorium opening and... My new book coming out today, or I guess yesterday, because it's Tuesday now, so that came out yesterday. Um, And then the Festival of Oddities is just a few weeks away. Like, I just, man, why didn't anyone tell me that running an evil empire would be so much work? Because it's so much work. (laughs) Anyway, don't forget, this is our summer finale, so there will be no new episodes in August. I need every second of the hottest month of the year to prep for the festival. But I will be back in September to finish out season three. Three years. That is so wild. So wild to me. And the next episode is episode 75. So we're going to do a big one. Um, If you don't already, go follow me on all of the socials. If you're not part of the So Dead Podcast discussion group on Facebook, you are really missing out on some fun stuff. And then, of course, TikTok, my new favorite. You can follow me there under ScreamQueen517. Until September, when I see you again, stay safe, try to stay sane, and keep shining, you magnificent what the fucks.